Well, good morning, church family. It is a new year. Everyone is wide awake. It is good to be worshiping God this morning. Can I get an agreement there? And I feel in a worshipful mood just because there is simulated snow behind me. You know, our kids for Christmas, uh, they use some of their Christmas money to buy snow tubes. It's not working out too well. And we're two months away from spring. <laughs> Way to stoke controversy, huh? Uh, but I'm glad you're here. If you're at any of our campuses this morning, we have Front Street, we have Bainbridge, we have Cincinnati, we have Online, we have five different campuses here and by simulcast. So welcome to everyone that chose to worship with us today. Uh, I'm Justin, I serve as a pastor here, and I happen to be the one who loves snow. So that's just who I am. Um, hey, we're talking about impossible situations this morning, kind of like the snow tubes without the snow. But I'm going to throw out some impossible scenarios, and you're probably going to relate to at least one of these, maybe more. But have you ever been put in the impossible situation of a young kid, not your own, asking you if Santa is real? And you're faced with the impossible situation, should I be dishonest or should I ruin their innocence? Um, maybe you're in the impossible situation of your mom giving you an extra large serving of your least favorite vegetables. Sounds like some of you have faced this like me. Should you be, I don't know, someone who gags and chokes them down? Or should you be disrespectful and unhealthy? It's an impossible situation. Maybe you're in that situation where your wife asks you the dreaded question. Should you be honest or smart? Maybe you're on the other end of it and your husband asks you, am I the most handsome guy you've ever seen? I'm an equal opportunity offender here. Should you be honest or smart? So the name that we have for these impossible situations is caught between a rock and a hard place. And in other words, you're faced with two equally unpleasant options. There is no good solution. Do you pick the lesser of two evils? You're in trouble if you do. There's no good option. There's another name for it, Catch-22. What do you do when you're in an impossible situation? Well, we're in part three of our Facing Opposition series, and the big thing we're looking at today when it comes to opposition is what do you do when you're put in an impossible situation, when you're caught between a rock and a hard place, and your only two options are terrible? How do you face that? We're looking at Jesus as our role model. He faced a ton of opposition. He, he handled it really well. And we're saying, okay, Jesus, teach us how to do this because we're facing opposition today. We're facing impossible situations in that opposition. How do we do this well? So we're going to look to Jesus as our role model today. One of his closest friends and inner circle disciple, John, wrote down a really personal account of Jesus' life and included a ton of the opposition in Jesus' response to it. And I think it's pretty important. So if you would meet me in his uh, gospel, the gospel of John, chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. John chapter 8. I'm going to use the New Living Translation. It matches a chair Bible if that's what you want to use. It should be in a chair in front of you. Uh, if you're at Front Street Campus, there's a white bag nearby you. And in there is a chair Bible. You can grab that. 
Uh, and, and just so you know, if you'd like a Bible or if you have one that's kind of using outdated English that you don't understand or use anymore, take that Bible as our gift to you. Consider it an investment in your spiritual walk. John chapter 8. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on the beginning of this chapter. It's a large one. But there's some things that happen after the beginning of the chapter, kind of because of what happens at the beginning of the chapter, that I want to briefly start with. So we're going to fast forward through our story and look at some key moments of opposition, and then we're going to rewind at what caused that. Okay, so I'm just going to put some opposition to Jesus on the screen, some key quotes from this chapter. One of them was this. Jesus is like, hey, I'm the light of the world, come to me. And they're like, your testimony, such testimony is not valid. So you ever told a story and your spouse is there and you're like, and your spouse is like, you didn't get any of those facts right. You're like, you just ruined the story. It wasn't about the facts, it was about the fun thing that happened, right? Jesus is kind of stuck in that situation. No matter what he says, there's people who are like, you don't have your facts right. Your, your testimony's not valid. And, and he keeps getting publicly shot down every time he tries to publicly speak. Such testimony's not valid, verse 13. And then in verse 19, he's asked this in a public kind of harsh way. Where is your father? Who's your daddy? The reason this was such a harsh accusation is because, well, two reasons. For one... By all accounts, Jesus' father's dead at this point. The other reason is his actual, he was actually born of Mary, not of a man, born of Mary when she was a virgin. And so he, he didn't really have an earthly father. So he was considered, I mean, many people didn't buy that story. They thought he was an illegitimate kid. So there's that dig there. And Jesus, when he talks about his father, is obviously talking about his heavenly father. And so there's all this accusation about his heritage and his identity. It's, it's pretty nasty, this opposition. And then if you go forward in the chapter, you're going to find verse 22. They, they literally say this out loud. Is he planning to commit suicide? They're, they're questioning his mental stability and his sanity. So if you ever face this type of opposition, just know Jesus exactly dealt with this very thing. In verse 25, they ask, who are you? They're questioning, again, his identity. Who, this is more like, who do you think you are? Can you imagine asking God's son that question in an obnoxious way? Who do you think you are? I, I'm sure Jesus had to bite his tongue because he probably wanted to look back and say, who do you think you are? Okay. Another one he faced is this. I mean, you Samaritan devil. This wasn't even a veiled compliment. This was one of the most profane statements you could say to someone because in that culture, a Samaritan was the most loathed person. They were a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile. It was like a mutt, a human mutt. And so they're saying to Jesus, you half-breed devil. The devil is the enemy of God. So you're this hated half-breed enemy of God. These are a little personal. Okay, and then, and then he got told this. Now we know you're possessed by a demon. Imagine telling the Son of God this, right? The, the one who was in heaven and the demons rebelled, right? These were angels. Demons are former angels who rebelled against God and against his throne and dominion over the world. And then they became the enemies of God. And they're telling Jesus they think there are demons inside of him. Crazy attacks. And then... It gets 
again, this statement, who do you think you are? I mean, they just say it outright. Who, who do you think you are? And so finally they say it one too many times. So Jesus answers them. And at the end of the chapter, I, I want you to peek at this. Jesus, verse 58, says, I tell you the truth. Jesus is like, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. I'm going to give you the truth. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, and then he makes a grammatical faux pas. What he should have said, right, grammatically is, I was, talking about past tense. Before Abraham was born, the father of the Jewish faith, I was. He doesn't say I was, and it's not because he's grammatically messed up. What is the statement he makes? I am. What is that statement, I am? It's the statement that God used to Moses in the burning bush when Moses said, who should I say sent me? And God replies. He doesn't say, tell him I'm God, tell him I'm Yahweh, tell him any of my proper names. God simply says, tell him I am has sent you. I am means I need no introduction. I have always existed. I am the originator and the author of everything that is. And Jesus is like, you want to know who I am? I am. Well, that's not how they reacted. Verse 59, at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. Very different reaction than what you just had. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So here's what's going on. The more Jesus talks and explains and teaches, the more the opposition is rising. He's months away from his death. You can feel the tension increasing. You can feel the opposition rising and getting more personal, more harsh, more vengeful and spiteful. And now they're picking up rocks. Jesus is on a mission on earth. His mission is to seek and save the lost. His time is running out. How can the lost be saved if they don't know where to go to be found? And so Jesus here does his clearest identity reveal. He's like, you've asked enough. I'm finally going to tell you. I'm months away from dying anyway. You want to know who I am? I am. I'm God. And they're like, all right, we've heard enough. And they pick up stones to stone him. Now, this isn't common globally right now. There's a few countries that still do this. But stoning was an ancient practice where you would participate in community to see justice done. So if there was someone that committed a capital offense, you wouldn't do an injection or an electric chair. You would do a stoning, and that would mean you'd, you'd gather uh, around a person who's convicted of a serious crime. You'd pick up stones, and you'd chuck them as hard as you could. You'd throw them at the person until they were dead. As you can imagine, that's a pretty painful way to die getting hit by hundreds of stones. You hope the first one lands and just knocks you out because it's going to be a painful way to go. Now, Jesus isn't averse to dying. He's going to die in a few months. It's just not his day today. So he slips away from this stoning. Here's the irony of this. This wasn't the first attempted stoning in this passage or even in this hour. There was another attempted stoning just minutes before this. And that's the story I want you to see. So back up to verse 1, and we're going to look at the first attempted stoning. Verse 1, here we go. Here's our key story. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, now, this is a cool moment, right? Here's the Son of God teaching people in the temple. This is where you go to worship God, and God is in the house. Right? When we sing and worship on Sundays as a church family, we have this sense like God is here and he's with us. And sometimes you even get a little feel for the presence of God. 
Well, well, the presence of God was literally there with them. He's teaching the temple. It's this beautiful Norman Rockwell scene until verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. How rude. I mean, he's trying to teach in the temple, the Son of God come into God's house, and these religious spiritual leaders come and interrupt to do a legal matter. Okay, so you have to ask what is going on. What is going on? This is a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus. Now, in that day, I'll just kind of explain this a, a little bit for you. In that day, if you were caught in the act of adultery, uh, let's see here if I, you can take it to the next slide for me, Carrie. Thank you. Um, if you were caught in the act of adultery, that was a capital offense. And by the law of Moses, you deserve to die. And so the Jewish way of doing that was a stoning. So they're actually correct because there's eyewitnesses, so the case is airtight. And in that culture, it was, it was experienced a moral decay. Nothing we can relate to. And as the culture was decaying morally, the, the spiritual people were like, we need to take a stand. We need to take a stand on God's law. We need to start purging the immorality from among us. And so it seems like a noble, righteous thing. Because in that day, sleeping around, wasn't, it wasn't just considered a private indiscretion. It was actually punishable by death, according to their law. Okay, verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Okay, so it was a good thing according to their law that she was caught and that should be dealt with. Just a few things to throw in here, though. Why did they bring her to a rabbi? He is not a judge and doesn't claim to be one. They should have taken her to a court. That's where you go to get justice, and they had Jewish courts. They should have taken her to the court and handed her to a judge and allowed the judge to decide on her fate. On top of that, if she was caught in the act of adultery, who can you logically assume was also there? The dude. Where is he? He's not here. He's not being publicly humiliated and shamed. They bring just the woman. So there's more going on here than this righteous attempt for justice. This is a trap. They're trying to put Jesus in a catch-22 situation. They don't want to get justice. They want to get Jesus. And, and let me just tell you, a lot of the rock and hard place situations that we're getting put in today, they're not trying to get us. They're trying to get Jesus. Okay. So they, they, they bring her out. They're trying to turn Jesus to face this rock and hard place, say the wrong thing, which he only has two choices, and they're both bad. And then they have some good content to take Jesus to trial and kill him. Verse 5. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, can you see what they're trying to get Jesus to do? They're trying to get Jesus to contradict Moses. They're trying to get Jesus to contradict Scripture. What Moses had written in the law was in Scripture. So they're trying to get Jesus to contradict Moses, Scripture, and ultimately God. And they know if they can do that, Jesus is toast. Because they're just waiting for that moment where they can take a sound bite, and he's in trouble. Now, just something to also throw out there. There's a little historical reality here that although that was the law, that those caught in the act of adultery should be 
tried, if there's witnesses and there's airtight evidence, they should be stoned. It's a capital offense. There's no indication that that law was ever enforced in Israel. There's no indication that anyone was ever stoned for adultery. So again, you kind of see here that this isn't really about justice. They had never done this before. This is truly about a trap. It's about a trap for Jesus. How's he going to respond? Is he going to pick the lesser of two evils? Do you throw out Moses and Scripture and God, or do you throw out this woman? All right, verse 6. <laughs> this is so fun. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus did something that probably no one expected. He stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. I mean, how maddening would that have been for them? Right? They have him. They have him dead to rights. He has no good option here. And Jesus just bends down and starts writing in the dust. Now, there's a, a bunch of theories on what Jesus was written. Some theorize that Jesus was writing the name of the woman. Others think that Jesus was writing out the names of her accusers or eyewitnesses. Others think he was writing out the sentence and the accusations against her in the sentence. Bottom line is, John didn't record it for us, so we have no idea. He could have been making smiley faces. We legit don't know what Jesus was drawing in the dust. We just know that he bent down and didn't respond. And that may be a wise first step when you're caught in a right rock and hard place. Don't say the first thing on your mind. Even Jesus, right? He just, he just gave us some time. He just bent down, started writing who knows what. Well, verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, here we go. All right. I bet they didn't expect that. You want to stone her? All right. Go ahead. Be my guest. But look what he adds. But, 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 right? Hold on, hold on, right? But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Go ahead. I mean, brilliant. Brilliant. So, so here's Jesus' two options. Either he's going to have to throw out truth, throw out truth. Some people thought this was my vomit bucket this morning. It's not. It's my prop. Um, throw out truth or throw out the woman. Those are Jesus' two options. And he chooses neither. He says, yeah, you got to do it. The, the law requires it. God's law, go ahead and do that. J just make sure, just make sure that the person that gets this party started, the person that throws the first stone, just make sure that they're not guilty of any sin before God. Just make sure you do this right. And it's a brilliant reply that escapes their trap. In fact, he literally takes the trap and slides it over to them. And now they're the ones caught. I mean, if you ever question if Jesus was God, right, you know he claimed to be the I am. You know he claimed those things. If you ever question, just look at the responses he gave, and you're like, who could have thought of that? That was brilliant. Now, verse 8, this is kind of funny. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. He just goes back down and keeps doing his doodles or drawings or whatever. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. Beginning, this is an interesting note that John includes, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now let me ask you, 
as these religious leaders who were, who were bent right now on throwing Jesus <laughs> out, throwing the woman out, whatever they're up to, as they begin walking away, why do you think the oldest left first? And we're not told, so there's different theories. And, and one of the more popular theories is it's probably because the oldest were the ones that were quickest to realize that they didn't deserve to throw a stone. They had a lifetime of baggage. They knew exactly that they weren't qualified. They, it didn't take them long to think, yeah, 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 like I'm pretty messed up. There's no way I deserve to throw that stone. And, and, and they didn't stick around for a show because they quickly, in their wisdom and age and experience, knew that there's no one else in the crowd who's qualified to throw stones. So they just walk away like this is over. And then everybody else slowly follows those who are older. And you've got the crowd left with Jesus in the center with the woman. And Jesus had just completely got out of their trap. Verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Now pause for a moment because this we haven't focused on, but the woman herself was likely half-dressed, if at all, she was caught in the act. She was, she was likely humiliated and terrified, right? probably cowering, shaking. And Jesus noticed her. In fact, I would argue in the crowd that day, there was probably only one person that really cared about her. And it was Jesus. In fact, there was only one person who protected her. And it was Jesus. And Jesus gives her hope. He says, woman, look around. Like, you can look around now. The people with the rocks, the people who were here to kill you, where are they? Is there anyone left? And she looks around. Yeah, there's no one, sir. There's no one. <laughs> and verse 11 is where we end here. No, Lord, she said. <laughs> and I love how she calls him Lord. Like, whoever you are, whoever you are, like, you're my master. You're my leader. You just saved my life. You didn't let them. You didn't let them use me as a pawn. Thank you. No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, this is beautiful. Neither do I. And by doing that, Jesus drops a hint here. He drops a hint that he was qualified to pick up the first stone. That's pretty interesting, right? Had Jesus ever done any sin? He, let, he said, he who has no sin, let him throw the first stone. Could Jesus have thrown the first stone? Yes. Did she deserve to die? Yes. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do it either. I'm not throwing a stone at you either. And then he says this. This is huge. Go and sin no more. Notice this. Jesus didn't, until the end of his talk with the woman, still wouldn't throw out truth. He didn't say, it's not a big deal. He said, it's a sin. Don't do it anymore. Don't sleep around. Cut it out. But you're on your way. You're forgiven. What's interesting is the leaders with the rocks and the crowd shuffled away that day. Whatever Jesus had written in the dust, whether it was her charges or her accusers or her sentence, would have been kind of shuffled away as the crowd walked away. Symbolically, right, her charges were now canceled and cleared. She was forgiven. Now, I want us to pause, and I want us to just chew on this.
for a few minutes. Because a moment ago, just a moment ago, Jesus was caught between a rock and a hard place. He had to face the impossible choice. Do I throw out truth, Moses and scripture and God's truth, do I throw out truth or do I throw out this woman? And it was an impossible choice and the leaders knew that. It's why the trap itself was so brilliant. And Jesus somehow escaped the trap. Let me ask you, as Jesus followers who face opposition today, is it possible that we're experiencing the same trap? Let me word it this way. Is it possible that we're facing the same choice to either throw out truth or throw out sinners? So, so, so let's ask, right? Because I think some of you know where I'm going with this. Who's the pawn in our story? Like, who are the people that are shoved in our face and saying, so what are you going to do with them? If you really believe in moral absolutes, if you really believe in this, what are you going to do with these people that violate your antiquated teachings and beliefs? So, so let's go there for a minute. Is, is it possible that abortion, let, let, let's talk about that for a minute. Could that be one of the moral issues that we're going to be, get faced and we are facing the quandary? What do you do with people who have either chosen an abortion or, or actual abortionists who do the aborting? What do you do with that? Have they done something deeply wrong? Well, Jesus would have said yes. You can't throw out truth. Yes. So what do we do with those who have chosen abortion or commit abortion? We can't throw away truth that life is precious from the womb to the tomb. We can't throw that truth out. To take innocent life is a crime against God and humanity. But, but, we also can't throw out abortionists or those who choose abortion because their life is precious too. And they are created and loved by God. You can hate abortion and you can love those who choose it. Okay, but, but I'm going to get a little more specific here because I think in our culture that's not the more common situation. I don't think that's the more common rock and hard place. I think there's a more common pawn. And I think it's very similar to the woman caught in adultery. I think today, Christians are being faced with the impossible situation. How are you going to handle those with questionable morality? Okay, let, let's talk about this for a moment. The LGBTQ community. Okay, is the world shoving them in front of us like the woman got shoved in front of Jesus? It's a trap. How will we respond? Now, I know there's a lot of thinking that we have to do with this. Are we going to respond by throwing out God's truth about sexuality? Sexuality is a gift given by God for marriage between a man and a woman, period. Are we going to throw that truth out? Or will we throw out those who ignore God's so you think about Jesus. Did Jesus view the woman as dispensable or disposable? The woman was a pawn, but Jesus wouldn't see her as a pawn. He saw her as a woman to care about and protect. He saw her as someone who needed to be rescued and forgiven. But is it possible that we, as especially people in a Bible church, 
who are not going to compromise God's truth, is it possible that we're in a place where we are starting to throw out, even if it's mentally or in private conversations, we're throwing out the very people that Jesus wants to rescue? Is it possible there's a third option? That there's another option out of this rock and hard place where we have to choose between throwing out truth and throwing out people not living in the truth. And here's why there's tension. And I feel it this morning, right? Here's why there's tension talking about this. Because we know that the way the culture's going and the increasing militancy of the LGBT movement, we know that that's the tip of the spear. Like that's the issue that's probably going to cause us to lose our tax exemption one day. Because we refuse to marry or baptize or dedicate someone in that lifestyle. We, we know that, we understand that, we see it coming, and it may not be that far off. We realize even teaching on it, teaching on it, this message alone could cause that to happen in the not distant future. And it could go further than that. Some of us may face jail time just for talking about God's actual truth on sexuality. We know this, we feel it. And with the increasing kind of militancy of the LGBT movement, we know that kind of that's the group that could cause us to lose our religious freedom. And so there's tension. So it's natural that we would feel fearful or angry or even mistrusting of that community. But here's what I don't want us to miss. Jesus faced that same trap. He faced the same trap. He didn't, he didn't just potentially face the trap of losing his religious freedom. He was about to lose his life. He faced the same trap. And he refused. He refused to throw out the immoral person. He was the only one in the crowd that day who could have thrown a rock. And he wouldn't do it. So just a thought for a moment. We have to be careful that we don't see people like that woman as our enemy, because they are not. They are perhaps taken captive by our enemy, but they are not our enemy. Now, if I haven't offended you yet, I'm about to. In any narrative, any, any story, any narrative, the, the natural thing to do is to identify with a main character. And so in this story, I think for most of us, we we either identify with or we want to identify with Jesus. He's, he's the hero in this story. Who wouldn't want to identify with Jesus? But I'm not sure he's the person who best represents me or you in this story. And I'm not sure it's the religious leaders. I'm not sure it's even the crowd. I think the person who best represents us in that story is the woman. We, my friends if we're honest, are caught in our sin. Humiliated and ashamed if it was brought publicly out today. If your thought life, if what you said and thought and did in private was exposed this morning, would there be anyone in this room, anyone listening, who would not feel totally ashamed? We are deeply in need of the mercy of Jesus like this woman was. I remember as a teenager being at a Christian worldview academy in Colorado for Christian young people to be taught a Christian worldview. It was my first time flying on an airplane. It was an amazing experience. I, I bunked in a large dorm room filled with guys my age. And so you can imagine young guys, teenagers, loaded in a dorm room. You can imagine what the jokes were like. 
you can imagine what the talk was like. It, it was often suggestive and inappropriate. But here's what I found a little peculiar. There were some really strong views in that dorm room, especially about homosexuality. And there were all kinds of debates, raging debates and, and discussions about gay people and how wrong that lifestyle was. And finally, finally one day in the dorm room, I, something snapped in me. I just had enough. And I just, I just asked. I opened my big mouth and I said, has anyone in here ever read Romans 2? Now here's why I said that, because Romans 1 kept being talked about. Romans 1 is the expose of how when God gives up on a culture, he kind of turns them over to do what they want to do, and the end result is a culture filled with sexual perversion, homosexuality. It's what we're experiencing in our culture, right? God gives them over to go ahead, do what you want to do, do whatever you want to do, and there's enormous increases of perversion. And so Romans 1 was constantly used. But do you know how Romans 2 begins? Okay, let me show you. Here's how it begins. You may think you can condemn such people, those who are involved in the moral perversion of your culture and the decay, but you are just as bad. He's, he's talking to the church here. You are just as bad, and you have no excuse. Their excuse is, well, I don't follow God. What's your excuse? Now, listen, he doesn't stop. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. That was not how the dorm room reacted. Because I had heard already the joking about women and porn and all this stuff. Like, same sin, same category of sin, immorality, lust, perversion. Twisting what God has given as a gift. And it makes us feel better to condemn those further down the slide of that immorality. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And we should know when we're pointing fingers, oh, stink, there's three pointed back at us. And when we're picking up that rock, that rock deserves to go at us. He who is without sin cast the first stone. I think it's clear in the story, I shouldn't be identifying with Jesus. I should be identifying with that woman. That woman is me. And that's why Jesus came, because the world is filled with that woman. People like you and me. Look at this. Jesus said this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And then he added this. Most popular verse in the Bible, and then he adds a sentence that's the most overlooked. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That is the good news. Jesus is not just the rescuer of the world. He's not just the rescuer that the world needs. He's the rescuer I need. He's the rescuer you need. He's the rescuer the church needs. And boy, I think we forget that. We can't throw out sinners because they are us. And we certainly can't throw out the truth. So I, I think Jesus modeled exactly what we do when we're caught in this rock and hard place. What do we do when, when people and groups are thrown at us as pawns in this culture war? What do we do? Who do we throw out? I think we do what Jesus did. We don't throw out truth or sinners. 
we don't, we can't. We care about both. We care about truth, and we care about sinners. Because Jesus did. And I want to say, I think that is something that makes Berean Bible Church very unique. It's something since I've been here that I've, that I've shared with people outside of this church that ask about this church. I said, something I love about this church family is they are a church that's a Bible church. It goes back to our history. This is a church 100% committed to the truth of God's word, and they won't compromise. And this is also a church that loves people far from God and will do anything to reach them short of sin. That is a really rare combination, but that reflects the heart of God. So my friend, as the temperature in our culture turns up and the heat turns up against Christians, just know you're gonna be faced with this decision. Do I throw out truth or do I throw out sinners? If you wanna follow your role model Jesus, don't throw out either. Care about both. Don't compromise, don't sugarcoat but also don't stop loving those who don't obey it because they are us. And I am just as much in need of the mercy of Jesus Christ as the immoral woman was that day. And Jesus looks at me and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's a pretty awesome savior that we have. Our world needs him, but my friends, we do too. Would you bow with me? Listen, I know, I know this was a lot to think about, a lot to consider, a lot to chew on. I know for some it was even maybe offensive. I get that. Jesus offended a ton of people that day. As I said, by the end of the day, rocks were about to be thrown at him. He made a stir. But maybe he was onto something. Maybe when he stood up and defended and protected that woman that day, while at the same time defending and protecting truth and the law of Moses and the scriptures, maybe he was setting an example for us. We can't compromise. No matter how badly our culture is going to try to force us to compromise our stand on scripture, we can't, we shouldn't, because Jesus wouldn't. But no matter how badly or how much our culture tries to get us to throw out <laughs> those who don't obey Scripture, we can't and we shouldn't because Jesus loves them, cares for them, died for them, and they're us. So my friends, my prayer for myself this morning, my prayer for you, is that as the temperature turns up and the opposition increases in an increasingly post-Christian culture, that you and I have the ability under attack when we're between a rock and a hard place to be like Jesus and to just take a few minutes, collect ourselves, and then respond in a way that is truthful and loving, that is clear and gracious. And let us always make sure that we never point fingers at anyone other than ourselves. There's no worse sinner. I'm it. I have no right to throw stones. And neither do you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way that you showed us how that day with that woman 
Help us. Give us the courage. Give us the strength to respond with that same measure of truth and grace and love. Lord, help us to remember at the end of the day, it's not our battle we're fighting. The battle belongs to you. We pray this in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen.